Jesus, thank you for this morning that we get to gather and worship you in such a beautiful space. Thank you for our kids wing and all the volunteers that it takes to get that going. So thankful for the families that have decided that making Jesus a priority to get up early, get the kids dressed and fed so they can come to church and hear about a God who loves them is important. I'm thankful for the gathering of the saints that we get to come together and sing songs of praise to the king of all creation who set aside his crown, becoming a servant to the Father's love so that we can be redeemed and restored and that we can become your children. And so Jesus, this morning, as we look into your word, may you speak to us. May we see what you were doing back then is still present and active and able to change even us today. So in, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been married for almost 10 years to my wife, Jacqueline. I married way out of my league, so it's pretty cool. I have a seven-year-old daughter. I have a four-year-old son, a two-year-old son, and in like November, the second or third week of November, we're gonna have another baby. Don't know the gender yet. Better be a girl, right? <laughs> my oldest girl, like, she's just like me. And so I, we have very few like, hey, knock that off kind of rules in our home. And, but one of the big ones is don't climb on the back of the couch because the couch is not a trampoline. You have a trampoline outside. If you need a trampoline, you have access to one. Don't ruin my couch, right? So we're at home and every, it's calm. Everything is fine. But then my mom comes over. And when my mom comes over, the children, the flip switches and they need to make everything all about them. Maybe you're familiar with that if you're a parent. And so I'm talking to my mom and I say, Briar, get off the back of the couch. And she knows. I go to talk to my mom and she goes, what? And I go, get off the back of the couch. And then she goes, what'd you say? And I'm like, I'm just trying to get one sentence out. I go, get off the back of the couch. And I'm trying to engage in this conversation. And she goes, what'd you say, dad? Briar, get off the back of the couch. And she looks at me and she goes, scream it in my ear. And I don't even know how to respond. Like, you're trying not to laugh, you know, like as a parent. And you're just kind of like, what? And then my mom just goes, you deserved that. I go, what did I do? And she goes, you did that to me every single day. Like, have you ever heard the metaphor, the pot calling the kettle black? So in that metaphor, it's not that there's these two black instruments and they despise each other. It's that the pot is black, the kettle is chrome, and he sees in the chrome kettle its own reflection and detests it. He doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't like his actions or his behaviors, the thing that he's doing. And he goes, oh, I can't stand that. And it's all this thing that's in him. Right, so with my daughter, she is me. And there's some things where it's like, does everything have to be all about you? And my wife is like, really? <laughs> okay, that's fine. There's things in the Old Testament in particular that when you read them, you look at the people in the story and you're like, are you kidding me right now? Are you serious? How could you do that? How could you not trust God after you've seen him come through for you in all these different ways? How could you behave that way? How could you say those things? How could you engage in that activity? And you're supposed to look at that and not go, all oh, these fools didn't know what was going on. We're supposed to look at it as a mirror and go, ah, dang, that's me. 
shoot, darn it. Okay, God, how do I work through that? What do I do about it? So the story we're going to look at today is a super obscure story. Um, if you've been around church a lot, you may know it, but a lot of people don't. Um, so I was talking with a friend, and even he hadn't read this story until just last week. And so we're going to look at it today. If you're new to church, it's going to be a strange one. What a weird one to come to church on a Sunday in here. But it's going to be in Numbers chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, you can flip there. And we'll have it on the screen as well. But here's the story leading up to this point. So you get the background. The Israelites have been in Egypt as slaves. God had pulled them out of Egypt through displaying his power and commitment to the Israelites through plagues against the Egyptians. He pulls them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They're able to cross through on dry ground and get to the other side. And the Israelites get to witness the sea go back and crush the Egyptian army following them. And then every single day in morning and evening, God provides food and all throughout the day, God provides direction for the Israelites. So they've been able to witness for the last 40 years, God's power and his commitment to them. That's where you and I are coming into this story. And here's what happens after 40 years of walking with God, seeing him come through, providing daily. This is the story we walk in. And it's Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Super weird story. So there's thousands of buildings. There's thousands of articles of clothing. If you go into any medical facility or if you see an ambulance drive by, you'll notice a symbol on it. And the symbol is there's a pole with a snake wrapped around it. And that comes from this story. It's the universally recognized symbol of healing. Here's a place that you can get healing. Here's a place you can get fixed. And it comes from this story right here. And so in this story, what we're gonna look at and hopefully what we'll be able to see in ourselves is there's a sickness. There's a sickness that needs to be healed that's in every single one of us. We're gonna look at the different ways that God prepared for them to be able to get healing. And everyone's walk with Jesus is different. And so for some of these, they'll be applicable to you, but maybe some won't. We're going to see that there is a medicine. And then we're going to look at how to take it. So the first thing is this. What is the sickness that needs to be healed? 
the thing that we see about the Israelites is they complain about food, right? God sends every morning manna. They begin to detest it. And as a result, into the camp comes a group of fiery serpents to come and bite people and they die. And you might go, that seems like an overreaction. Don't you think? We went zero to 100 real quick. So let's talk about the serpents real quick. It, it could be that they were this supernaturally strange creatures. Absolutely, that could have happened that are actually snakes that are on fire, which I think is the scariest thing my brain can conjure up, that that's coming after you. It could be that. It could be more that they were snakes that when they bite you, you catch on fire. There's inflammation that's going on in your skin. You get a fever. There becomes this unquenchable thirst that's in you that nothing satisfies. You can't cool off. You can't calm down. And then eventually, you die from it. From the inflammation, the swelling, and the raging fever, and the thirst, you die. And that's the fiery serpents. And so we will look at this story, and we'll go, this seems like a disproportionate reaction to what was going on. Like, OK, maybe they were wrong in not liking the food, but I don't know that we needed to send the snakes. I make a lot of meals for my kids. They don't like most of them, right? At no point am I like, time to die, OK? It's gotten close. I'm not going to lie to you. But it's never been like, OK, snake time, right? But what the author is trying to show you and me in this story is there's a direct correlation, a remarkable correlation between what the people say and what's going on with them and the sickness that's within them they don't even see. So let's look at first. They say that they, they loathe the manna, the food that God leaves for them. They hate the food that God is bringing for them. The manna was something that God brought every single day miraculously. Every single morning, there would be manna for them. The Bible tells us it's sweet as honey, and they were able to make pastries out of it. They were able to make bread out of it. They could make a bunch of different options out of it. It's literally food from heaven. It's probably the best food that's ever been on earth. It's this direct, wonderful, daily testimony of God's power and commitment to them. And at first, they're super grateful about it, and now they're hating it. Well, what's going on? So what we see, the story in the entire Bible, is this is what people do. So like in Genesis 1 and 2, you have human beings in paradise, right? Everything is good. There is no sin. There's no um, hurt feelings. There's no backwards comments. There's no passive aggressiveness. There's, you can do anything you want, and everything that God has created is good. There's one rule. You can't eat of one tree, and that's it. And what happens in that story? Into the camp, into their land comes a serpent. And this serpent tells them, hey, that's not fair. It's not fair you can't do that. You can't be engaged with that tree, that you can't partake in that. It's probably the best tree. You know, God's holding out on you. You're missing out. It's not enough all that you have. And what happens is the spiritual venom of that serpent passes into the heart of every single human being for every single generation. And what happens is there's this unwillingness to trust God that is in each and every one of us. It passes through our hearts, it passes through our soul, and it's this all-consuming, unquenchable discontentedness. This thirst that can't be quenched comes in. And so you and I can literally be in paradise, and it won't be good enough, because that's who we're built to be now. And so this is what the Bible teaches. Deep in the center of every human being is this dislocation of our soul. Have you ever had a bone be dislocated? 
And there's just the grinding and the pain and the irritability and the damage and the loss of function. The Bible is saying the human soul is dislocated from God. And so every human being feels this discontentedness, this dislocation. And this is why the author is showing us this correlation that what's happening in their body with the poison from the snakes is far less important than the dislocation, the poison going on in their heart that's utterly devastating them. And in every single one of us, there's this raging thirst. We have a infinite borderless capacity for boredom and irritability and frustration over even the best things, don't we? We have an infinite capacity for it. And this syndrome, this, this problem in us, it only progresses more the more successful you get. The more you're able to try to fill your life with things, you'll find the more successful you get, the quicker you realize the infinite vacuum that exists within you, it doesn't matter what you put in it, you begin to detest it, you begin to hate it. So John D. Rockefeller, does anyone recognize that name from when you were in school? He was the world's first billionaire with a B. World's first. So he was in an interview and he was asked, if you could, now that you have more money than anyone else, what do you want? which is such a brilliant question. Like, don't we all want the answer to that? If you had unlimited resources, if you had more than anyone else, you could do anything, what would you actually do? What, would you, what do you actually want? And John D. Rockefeller, he said, all I want is one more dollar. Do you see what he's saying? In this infinite vacuum that's in him, he's got more money than anyone else, I just need one more. One more would do it. Do you guys all know Jim Carrey? Jim Carrey, he hit his peak. He got two, in one sitting, he won two Golden Globe Awards, which is a big, big, big deal. In that realm, that is the highest accolade you could get. And so Jim Carrey goes up to accept his award. He stands at the podium and he says, I am no longer Jim Carrey. I am two-time Golden Globe Award winning Jim Carrey. And everyone kind of laughs. He goes, when I go home, I will be two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. When I brush my teeth at night, it won't be Jim Carrey brushing his teeth. It will be two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey brushing his teeth. And when I sleep at night and I dream, it will be two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey dreaming of being three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. You see what he's saying? It's not enough. I got the greatest accolade you could get for someone in my profession, and I just need one more. Last one, what about Kurt Cobain? If you know Kurt Cobain, he was in Nirvana and he had literally the Midas touch. Anything he did, pop culture ate it up, turned to gold. At one point in his career, he's got everything he could ever want. He's got more money, he's got more material possessions. He, he's at the top of his peak and he decides, we're gonna, we're gonna throw the band. We're going to become an underground grunge band again, just like we started. We're gonna go back to the good old days. This isn't working. So they come out with an album that he's trying to make the band tank, and it's called Nevermind. The biggest album they come out with. And if you actually listen to the words and the lyrics of the song, you can see. I'll quote some of it for you. Right? Here we are now. Like he's trying to throw the band. It doesn't work. It becomes their number one most successful album. He ends up taking his life because at the top, when he had all the riches, all the material possessions, he found out everything that I fill this void in me with, it just makes me more unhappy. 
And I misquoted it last service, but I said Socrates said this. It's not Socrates. It's another brain guy, but the, the core of it matters is this. I'm not a brain guy, all right? It's not Socrates. It's one of his peers. He said that in the heart of every single human soul is this endless abyss, this vacuum that only God can fill. And we try to fill it with accolade and relationship and money and sex and all of these things that we think, if I could just get that thing, then I'll be happy. And it never satisfies. The only thing that satisfies it is ultimately God. And so I have this Son, Elon, when he was two, we had this toy. We can't have this toy in our house anymore. And it was a toy that had a bunch of shaped holes in it, and he would have shaped pegs. And he would decide every peg belongs to one hole only, not the rest of them. And so he would try at it, silent at first, then just get red in the face, and tears would grow. And then, like, you could almost not pay attention because he's just in his own quiet misery, you know? And we're going about our day, and all of a sudden, Elon explodes. He's just, ah! And we're like, what's going on? And he can't get it. Let me help you. No! And can't have it in our house anymore. We had to remove it. That's what's going on internally with you and me. We try to keep throwing money. We try to keep throwing relationship. We try to throw every single thing that we can into this void that only God can ultimately fill. And so what happens is this, situa- this thing that's in us, you realize it more the more successful you are, the more opportunity you have to fill that void, the more you realize how endless it is and how unhappy with everything and anything you will be because nothing's ever good enough. That's why so many people don't get married. That's why so many people are unhappy in their marriage and they'll be unhappy in the next relationship that they're in. That's why so many people are unhappy with their career and they get more and more unhappy the further up in their career they get. That's why we talk down about so many people, so many other people. And it's why we talk down about ourselves. That's why so many of us dislike the way that we look is because all this stuff that we invest in and think this will finally make me happy doesn't actually do it. I'm married. I've seen the Amazon packages. Okay. I've seen the thing of that's going to do it. It never does it. It never actually fills. There's this raging fever, this all-consuming, unquenchable fire that's going to consume everything. You could literally have bread from, from heaven. You could be in paradise, and it will never be good enough. So there's this correlation going on with the Israelites of what's physically they're feeling with the venom in them and what's going on in their soul. And what's happening in their body isn't nearly as serious as what's going on in their soul. So the question is, how do you treat it? So we have this thing, we have this problem, we have this sickness. How do you treat it? So there's three things that this text shows you and me can prepare you for treatment. And every single person's walk with Jesus is different. And so one of these, two of these, or all of these might not be true specifically for you and your walk, but this is what happens in the text for the Israelites. The first thing you see is they're in trouble. It takes trouble for them to realize, I need help. I need things to change. They didn't see what was wrong with them until they got sick. They didn't see what was really killing them before they started to die. They didn't see the poison that was in their soul until they saw what was going on in their body. Some people just never wake up to their need, that they need to be dependent upon Jesus. Some of us were completely ignorant of that and blind to it and won't see it until we find ourselves in serious trouble, until the the addict hits rock bottom, until our marriage is in distress, 
until there's issues at work and we don't know if we're going to be able to keep the house, until the economy crashes, until we're in real material trouble, marital trouble, social trouble, or even physical trouble, we can be blind to our need to be dependent upon Jesus. And so this is the first thing that happens for the Israelites. Until something goes wrong, almost all our wisdom and our spiritual growth, all the stuff that happens because something comes into your life and wakes you up and forces you to go to the great physician. So this is the first prep for healing for these people. And so if you feel like you are in trouble, you feel like you are in physical distress or your marriage is rough or things are going hard at work, Maybe God is allowing that trouble to happen so that you would turn to him and say, God, I need you to help me. God, I'm trying to fix it with all this other stuff. And really what I need to do is be dependent on you and go, okay, God, will you heal me? It might be that you need that trouble in order to reach out to God. So that's the first thing for the Israelites. They're in trouble and it prepares them for healing. The second thing is this. They have friendships with believers, so watch this. It's, it's, if you have your Bible, it's in verse 5 of Numbers 21. Listen to what they say. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then in verse 7, look how quickly they flip. And the people came to Moses and said, yeah, we've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And then in verses seven and eight, Moses prays for them. Pray for the Lord that he may take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So in verse five, you have the, the nation of Israel. They speak against Moses. Verse seven, they're patching things up with Moses. And then in verses seven and eight, Moses doesn't rub their nose in it or beat them down or say, yeah, you're right or disqualifies them. Instead, he goes to God on their behalf and prays for them. There's a reason that God calls us to not forsake the assembly of his people, that there's something really important when you come together into a, an assembly like this to pursue Jesus and talk about Jesus together. You can get here, you can discuss the things that we talked about, you can disagree, you can argue, you can work through some serious issues. And the way the Bible puts it is you sharpen each other. You rub against each other. It makes you sharper. It makes you smarter. It makes you know more, you're more aware of the things that's going on. Your friends in this community are able to build you up and encourage you in the Lord. But if we're being honest, friends are really hard to keep, right? Friends are kind of like home ownership. If you own your home, you realize that everything is in a constant state of falling apart. And everything has to be repaired all of the time. Friendships are kind of like that. Like, hey, man, you really hurt me. Hey, I really hurt you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that hurt you. Oh my God. And like, you, that can kind of happen, right? Where it just feels like I, we're constantly having to work on this thing, but that's actually super good because you have to treat your friendships like upkeep on, on a house. Hey, we need to clear the air because this is a really big place, right? It's a big place with a bunch of different people in it. Why are we here? We're not all here because we have the same hobbies. We're not all here because we have the same interests. We're not here because we have the same history or the same background or we've been through the same circumstances. We're not here because we have a similar job or similar career. What's the thing that gets us all here? It's we're unified in following Jesus as king. And here's what's so crazy about that. 
When you come into this situation, it's more likely that you're going to have people who irritate you than people you really enjoy. Isn't that the truth? You ever come to church and you're like, I can't stand that person. That means church is literally a miracle that it exists. You have people from all different walks of life who see things differently than you, who have experienced different situations, who had different kinds of parents, who have a different outlook on parenting, a different outlook on marriage, different outlook on how to run your job, and you're able to come together and discuss the gospel, discuss what it means to walk in a Christian life, and you're able to point out things in each other that you might not see because you have a different worldview. You have a different way of looking at life. You have a different upbringing. Do you see how that sharpens you? So now you have a group of people who get together and you're able to talk with each other and raise each other up in the Lord. That's why you can come to a big church like this and you can sneak in and not get to know anyone and you can sneak out and maybe that's why you like coming here because it's so big, it's easy to get missed. I think you're missing out. There's a lot of growth that could happen in your walk with the Lord that you miss out on if you are unable or unwilling to sit down with other believers and say, hey, this is what we discussed today. How does that work in your life? How have you actually seen that happen? Or, hey, I've got these issues going on at home. In light of what we talked about today, how does that actually affect me? How does that change things? Do you see how that sharpens you? And so for the Israelites, what prepared them for healing is they were able to go to someone who was strong in his walk with the Lord, and they were able to say, hey, we messed up. I mess up against you. I mess up against God. What do we got to do about it? And Moses goes, let's talk, to, let's talk to Jesus about it. Do you see how that works? Do you see how that's able to grow them more quickly in wisdom and in healing than if they were to go at it on their own? So that's the two things that prepped them for healing so far. There was trouble. They need friends who are believers. If you're not in a community group, get in a community group. And number three, the third thing that prepared them for healing is it was they stopped blame shifting. It wasn't everybody else's fault. They say, we sinned against the Lord. Not, yeah, man, we sinned, but this is kind of ridiculous. Like, we just didn't like the food in the cafeteria, and now the principal's going on this, like, execution raid. That's not what they do. I don't know if you've been on social media over the last 10 days, but there's a guy named Daryl Brooks, and he's on trial I don't know if you've been watching any of that. Daryl Brooks is the guy, November 21st of 2021, he drove his SUV through a parade and he hit 73 people and killed six of them, I think, is around those numbers. 80 people injured, basically, or killed. And his entire defense strategy is this. It's everybody else's fault. It's your fault, it was their fault, it's my ex-girlfriend's fault, it's my mom's fault. He even fired his lawyer to represent himself because in the event that he gets convicted, he wants to have the argument of, well, I didn't know it was the judge's fault, she had it out for me. Do you see how he's doing that? It's this constant blame shifting, it's everybody else's fault. For the Israelites, there's none of that. The Israelites, they say, hey, we know that this problem is my own. It's my fault. I know this problem is self-induced. And so there's not a word of blame shifting that happens. They say we sinned and spiritual healing can really begin when you and I stop blame shifting. And it's core in each and every one of us, especially men. You see it in the first man, Adam. When he sins, what is his response? It was the woman you gave me, God. He blames his wife and he blames God. Is that not every man? That's what we do. But not with the Israelites. They said, you know what? It's, it's my fault. I sinned. I need to get this fixed. So the three things that prepped them for healing was there was trouble that woke them up. 
There was friendships with believers they could go to and say, okay, what do we have to do? And they stopped blame shifting. They said, it was my fault. I did this. How can we move forward? And so what's the treatment? What is the medicine itself? And this is the weirdest, oddest part of the entire story. This is the most counterintuitive things. Out of all the things God could have done to say, hey, here's how you go get fixed. Here's how you're going to heal the situation. God says, no, go and create a giant image of the thing that's killing you. Put it on a pole so everyone could see it and then have them come look at it. And then you're going to be all better. There's so many reasons why that doesn't work. Like psychologically, that doesn't work, right? Like, okay, so I've been bit. I feel it. It's fiery. I'm sweating. I have a fever. I feel awful. I'm so thirsty and nothing can quench it. I'm dying. You're telling me to go look at this thing you made in your backyard. I'm going to be all better. Psychologically, it doesn't work, right? You'd say, no way. You're crazy. Even just think about the trauma of that. Like there's so many people who have died from these snakes and now you're saying, yeah, you need to go look at it. And you've been bitten by a snake. If you've been bitten by, even if they weren't like just snakes that bit you and made you feel fire on the inside, what if they were actually fire snakes and that thing came at you? Think of the nightmares you would have. And now you're saying you need to go look at it and you'll be all better. Okay, psychologically, it doesn't work. You think that's crazy. Theologically, it doesn't work. I mean, think about for the Israelites. What is a serpent? He's the picture of evil in Genesis. He's the bad guy. He's the accuser. He's the one that made us fall. He's the evil. He's the picture of sin. Why are we going to put that up on a pole and look at it and feel all better? That's insanity, right? So psychologically, it doesn't work. Theologically, it doesn't work. But God said, that's what you're going to do. And the Israelites never found out why. Moses probably never found out why. That's just what God had them do. It wouldn't be till centuries later that anyone would find out why. Jesus explains why. He's in this conversation in John chapter three, where he's got this guy named Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Every single religion that has ever existed with the exception of Christianity acknowledges that there is a gap between humanity and God, and then it is humanity's responsibility to bridge that gap. Christianity doesn't look at it that way, but every other religion says you must do the work, put in the time, put in the effort to get yourself back over to God. You must make yourself clean before you can experience God's goodness. Every other religion does that. And so every time that you're honest, every time you tell the truth, every time you stay pure, every time that you don't engage in things that you know you shouldn't engage in, every time you give to the poor, all of those are ways that you put planks down to get yourself over to God. However, every time you sin pulls a plank up. So every time you engage in behavior that you know you shouldn't engage in, every time you lie, steal, cheat, those are all sins of commission. You engage in them. But there's also sins of omission, which is you did not do the thing you knew you should have done. I withheld truth. I didn't do the right thing. All of those also pulled up planks. And so every other religion says, this is your job as a human being. You are to put enough planks down to that. At the end of your life, the planks down outweigh the planks that came up and you can make it over. And God might let you in. So Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's a high up religious guy. Everyone in the community looks at him and is like, Nicodemus kills it. Like he's got planks to spare. 
And so he's heard of Jesus. Jesus has come into town. He's this preacher and teacher talking about God's kingdom. And Nicodemus goes, hey, Jesus, what do I got to do to get eternal life? Thinking that Jesus is going to be like, Nikki, bud, you've made it. Are you kidding me? Hey, everyone, come here. Look at Nicodemus. Look how humble this guy is. We need more people like you. You've already made it, my guy. Here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus goes, you? For you to be saved, you'd have to be born again. You'd have to start completely over because too messed up. You made too many mistakes. And everyone listening would be like, well, if he's, if he's too far gone, there's no hope for me, right? Here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus says in this, he says, you'll never be able to build that bridge across. And so in this chapter where Jesus, it's the most famous section of Jesus explaining who he is. This is what he says to Nicodemus. It's John 3, starting in verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, because that would be shocking. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Well, then how do I do this? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus is saying to him. That thing that the serpent was for Moses, that's what I am. What that thing was, that's what I am. The way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is he says, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying is this picture for the Israelites of evil, of wrong, of sin, Jesus says, I'm going to become that. I'm going to become the picture of evil. I'm going to legally become all of your evil and take all of your issues and take all of your sin upon myself so that you can be set free. Isaiah 53 says, he carried our diseases and by his stripes we are healed. And so you can say, well, that's really interesting. But why couldn't God just forgive? How come Jesus had to come and die and become that emblem of sin and shame on that cross, take evil upon himself, become sin. Why did he have to do that? Why couldn't God just forgive? I mean, just think about it. You and me can't just forgive. No one can just forgive. That doesn't just happen. It, on a very low level, if someone comes into your house and breaks a lamp in one of your rooms, you can forgive them and say, hey, that's fine, don't worry about it. But ultimately, either I'm gonna have to go bear that price and pay for a new lamp, or I'm gonna live in a room that's dark and, and I've lost the lamp. Or I have to say, you broke my lamp, you have to pay for it. Someone has to pay for it. And it's easy to see with material possessions, but what about in the social realm? What about relationships? If someone goes and ruins your reputation, drags it right through the mud, 
And they come to you and they say, hey, none of that was true. It was me. Will you forgive me? You have one of two choices. You can say to them, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to drag your name through the mud so everyone knows what you did and my name is restored. Or you're going to forgive them and keep your mouth shut and you are going to bear the weight of having the bad reputation so theirs doesn't get tarnished. Don't you see? No one can just forgive. It doesn't work. Someone bears the cost. And so in this way, Jesus is saying, I will bear the cost. I'm going to take it all upon myself. The way the Lord forgives is he had to endure the infinite thirst, the eternal dislocation that you and I have. And so for, for Nicodemus, he says, how can this be? Jesus isn't calling Nicodemus to just be forgiven. He's calling him to be born again, to be repaired. It's not just, hey, you're going to be healed. That's, I want you to be fixed. I want you to be completely changed. You don't need to be pardoned. You need to be healed. There's a medicine that will help you be born again and it will change you. And Jesus directly correlates what he does in, in you and me with what happens in Numbers 21. As they looked, so you must believe in me. Look. So what does that mean? He's, how's looking the way of getting the medicine? You and I are used to doing. We were sinning before and now we want to do good in order to make up for it. And Jesus says that doesn't work. He wants you to be born again. Who... Who chooses to be born? Do you plan on being born? Like, ah, I'm going to be born in two weeks. No? Right? How do you get born? It's through the labor and the effort and the pain and the work of someone else. And that's what God is saying. Jesus is saying, it's not about your work. I don't want you to work harder. I don't want you to put in more effort. I don't want you to do all these things. Men really like lists. I love lists because if I get the list done, I've done a good job and no one can be mad at me, right? If my wife sends me a Winco list, then she can't be like, well, why didn't you get this? Because it wasn't on the list, right? So men love lists. Like, hey, what do I have to do to be saved? Okay, come to church. Great, stop sleeping around. All right, you can't do drugs, fine. Like we, all of these things, I want a list, Give me the list and I'll follow the list. Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it's going to work. It's not about your doing. It's about being born again. That it's a work that God does and you and me need only to look at him. There's a man named Charles Spurgeon and he put it like this in his autobiography of how he got saved. Charles Spurgeon, if you don't know him, he was a huge preacher in Europe, arguably one of the best. And this is what he said. When he was a young man, looking to find God, but really didn't understand things. One day in 1850, he was walking to church and there was a snowstorm. And so this, he wants to go to this one church. The snowstorm happens. So he goes to a different church that's nearby just to get out of the snow. And when he comes in, there's only 12 other people there. And the pastor of that church couldn't even make it because he got snowed in. And so now this poor shoemaker who was not prepared to teach that morning, he had to get up and teach because he was the most able. So he gets up, he opens up his Bible to Isaiah 45, 22, and this is what he reads. Charles Spurgeon is there, 12 people, and the shoemaker reads this. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. So he began. This is what he shared. This is a simple text. It says to be saved, all we need is to look. It's not lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. You don't need to have gone to college to look. Even a child can look. You don't need to be worth $100,000 a year to look. Anyone can look. Ah, but now the text says, look unto me. Many of you look into yourselves. There's no use looking there. 
The text says, look unto me. Then the good man lifted up his arms and said, the good Lord says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Look unto me. And after doing that for 10 minutes, 10 minutes of look unto me, look unto me, He looked around the room and saw young Spurgeon sitting in the back, the only stranger, the only one the guy didn't know. He pointed his finger at him and said, young man, you look miserable. What a way to be greeted at church. (laughs) And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death until you obey my text. Young man, look, look, Look to Jesus, you have nothing to do but look. And Spurgeon said the blow struck. He had been waiting to do 50 things to find God. But when I heard that word look, the cloud finally was gone. Like the bronze serpent lifted up the people, they only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I looked and looked and looked until I could have looked my eyes away. Every other system And inside of us, we all want it to be, hey, I can do these things and make it up to God. I can complete this list, but that's not how it is. We've got a poison in us, and the only thing that can heal us is to look at Jesus and be healed. So there's only two groups of people in this room. There is someone who has looked at Jesus on the cross, been healed, and is now walking that out in sanctification, saying, okay, God, Mold me and shape me. Let me be clay. Let you be the potter. Make me look more and more like Jesus every single day. And a role that you can take from here today is be Moses to someone. Be someone's friend that you can rub shoulders against, argue with, discuss, but always be able to reconcile and go to God on their behalf so that we can sharpen each other and follow Jesus the best way we can in spiritual healing and in growth. And there's the other person who you haven't looked at Jesus, who you haven't gotten healing. And here's what's so amazing about that if you want it today. is It's perfectly illustrated in communion. If you have your communion, you can open it. Christianity alone says this, and it's so important the, the way that we take communion. Christianity alone says this. Taste and see the Lord is good. Eat. Taste and see the Lord is good. And then... Drink and be cleansed and be healed. Do you see that? Every other religion says this. Make yourself good, make yourself holy, make yourself righteous, fix yourself, and then you can taste and see. And I made this joke last service. It's even better with our communion at Edgewater because it's so hard to get the cup open. It's not about your work. You might not be able to get the cup open. Praise God, it's not about you. That doesn't disqualify you. Christianity is the only religion. Jesus is the only savior who says, I'll give you my very best. I'll take on your very worst. So you could look at me and you can be set free from the thing that's consuming you, crushing you, eating you up. And then you can drink and be cleansed. And then every day then move forward and, okay, Jesus, help me walk this out. Help me grow in wisdom. Help me me encourage others the way that you want me to.
because we need more Moseses. And if you, here are, if you are here today and you have not looked at Jesus, right now is your opportunity. You might say, oh, it looks too good to be true. It is. That's what's amazing about it, is it's not about you. To be born again is all about the labor and pain and work of someone else, of what Jesus has already done. It's offered freely to you this morning. So Jesus, as we take the bread, we are reminded that we have a God who gave, us our, who gave us his very best when we were at our very worst. That you became all of my evil. You assumed all of my evil, all my trespasses, all of my sin upon yourself so that when God looks at me, he sees me as living the life that Jesus lived, perfect and holy and pure, that I am justified because of the work of Jesus on the cross.